Second Corinthians chapter two. Second Corinthians chapter two. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter two, and I'm going to pick up this morning at verse fourteen and read down through the end of the chapter. Second Corinthians two, verse fourteen. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, maketh manifest the savour of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death, and to the other the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. The title of the message this morning is Making Christ Manifest in Every Place. Making Christ Manifest in Every Place, taken there from verse 14. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. Father, I pray as we look into the word of God today that you help me as I preach. I pray the Spirit of God would direct my thoughts, my words, that they be pleasing and glorifying and encouraging and challenging your people. Father, there be any in our midst this morning who do not have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not know for certain, or have assurance of eternal life that you are their Heavenly Father. I pray that you would bring conviction and repentance that we might all be glorified together and that your name might be manifest in every place. We'll thank you and praise you. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, religion is a cloak that many put on on a certain day of the week or at times during the year, but then it has little or no effect on everyday life. Christianity, on the other hand, is not a cloak that one puts on on Sunday and then takes it off the rest of the time or the rest of their life. Bible Christianity, it is life that permeates our very being. It is who we are. It governs our words, our attitudes, and manner of life. Again, it is who we are. We are children of light and have the light of life. You know, true Christianity manifests itself in every part of life. That's what Bible Christianity is. It should manifest itself in every part of life. You notice Paul says here that verse 14, maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ. It's Christ. For me to live is Christ. No, He is my life. Christ is manifest in my life. So every day that I live is Christ. So we ought to ask ourselves, is Christ manifest in my life? Does my life demonstrate a relationship with God? The word here, maketh manifest, means made actual, visual, made realized, or known. John 3.21, the Bible says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. First John 4.9, John said, And this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son in the world, that we might live through him. So God, you know, when something is manifest, it is made known. And Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that we're to make us manifest the savor of his knowledge. We're to manifest some things, and we're to manifest the savor of his knowledge. Now, savor is a smell. It's an odor. And the idea here of us being a savor is that and, you know, a savor or an odor is something that kind of lingers. 
that you think about. Uh, you know, when I think about a hog barn, immediately there's a smell that comes to mind. Or chicken manure. I remember when I was growing up and living there in McAlevey's Fort, there was a farmer in the area that often would get chicken manure and he'd, he'd pile it up. The, the, the chicken house company would bring it over and dump it along the road at the top of the hill at his place during the summer, in the heat of the summer. And they dump it there. And every time you drive by that curve, you would smell that distinct noise. And then when he'd spread it on the field, this is good, it's high in nitrogen, he would spread it on his field, you would also, it had a distinct smell. Everybody knew Martin was spreading chicken manure. It had an odor that lingered. I still can remember that odor. I can remember, you know, there's a, there's a, there's an odor of, of cow pit manure as well. You know, I spread lots of that. So I know what that smells like. Uh, you know, so we're, we're talking about something here that has a lingering, uh, uh, and the idea for us is lingering thoughts that people have of us. Lingering thoughts people have of us. You know, you walk into, you might walk, sometimes when I come home, uh, maybe from working or home somewhere and I walk in the house, there may be a smell. And I know right away, it's food. It's food that's cooking in the, or baking in the kitchen. Or it could be a candle. You know, most of the time those things are pleasant. Uh, pleasant smells. But they linger. An odor. In John 12, 3, it says, Then took Mary a pound of ointment, a spike mod, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. In other words, talking about a pleasing smell. Ephesians 5, 2, the Bible says, To walk in love, we are to walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Your walk in love and obedience to God, to Christ, is a sweet-smelling savor to God. It's pleasant to Him. Paul said in Philippians 4.18, I have all. He wrote to the church of Philippi, I have all abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. And this is how he described those things that were sent. An odor of a sweet smell. A sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And so, we're to manifest this savor, this, this idea of, of an odor, a sweet-smelling savor, or lingering thoughts that people have of us. Now, he also talks about making manifest the savor of his knowledge, verse 14. A savor of his knowledge. You know, knowledge, he's describing here knowledge as a savor. Knowledge talks about intelligence or understanding. And knowledge, your understanding of God and how to have a relationship with him is a sweet savor to us. You know, it's God's desire to manifest that the savor of his knowledge to every person. And it's like a sweet-smelling savor. And so, uh, you know, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. Ruth was hungry. Not hungry for food. She was hungry for that which pleased God. For a knowledge and understanding of God. She was satisfied. And that knowledge was like a sweet savor to her. Something that was pleasant and pleasing and satisfying. And this, again, this, this savor, this knowledge, I want you to notice this also, is by us. Notice in verse 14. 
Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. You see, we are the instruments that carry this savor or carry this knowledge. Now, Revelation talks about the angel flying through the sky with the everlasting gospel. We don't have angels flying through the sky right now with the everlasting gospel. God has chosen us. He has chosen or ordained us to go and bring forth fruit. He's chosen us as the instruments to, to give this message, this knowledge to a lost and dying world, this savor. The word by means through. So it is through, we are through whom this savor, this odor is manifest to the world and to the people around us. You know, speaking of John the Baptist in John 1 7, it says of him, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. And just as John the Baptist was sent as a forerunner to Jesus Christ to point men to Christ, we are sent to point people to Christ. To be a witness to him. John said in 1 John 1, 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which is which the Father was manifested of us. And so, as children of God, we are to be a sweet savor to the world. We are to manifest the love of God, and manifest an understanding and knowledge of God to the world that can be a sweet savor to them. Now think about it. Children of God are a sweet savor to the world. They're a blessing to the world. Think about this. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 6. We'll look at a couple of passages of Scripture. And I want to ask you this question. Who wouldn't like these people that are described in Matthew chapter 6, verse 38 through verse 44? Matthew chapter 6, verse 38. It says, Ye have hath heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and tooth for tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, Whatsoever shall smite thee, whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him also, uh, turn to him the other also. In other words, if somebody insults you, you're to take it. You're to bear it. If any man will sue thee at law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from them that borrow thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate the enemy. Isn't that the way the world works? But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now let me ask you something. Who wouldn't like those kind of people? Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And verse 17. Romans 12, 17. Says... Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. You know, even, and, and this is almost funny to me. I had a Mennonite. Mennonites are supposed to be pacifists. And a Mennonite said to me, you need to fight fire with fire. But the Bible says here, you recompense to no man evil for evil. You provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible as much as life, then you live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt eat coals of fire in his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And again, I would ask you a question. Who wouldn't like these people? Who wouldn't like these people? You see, the Bible teaches that children of God are to be honest, they're to earn their living, they're to obey the authorities, they're to be kind and considerate of others. You know, this is the kind of people that, that are, are children of God. You know, the, the atheist in Maine that I witnessed to on several occasions said to me one time, he said, uh, he said, you know, he said, you know, I get on the internet, and this is a few years ago, and, you know, but he said, I get on the internet and I, debate and talk with other atheists who are who are 
uh, criticizing and condemning Christians, and I say, and I tell him, you're wrong. He said, what we need, what we need in this world is true Christians. If this world had more true Christians in it, he said, I could get in my truck, and I could drive across country, and I could just pull into a yard somewhere and say, could I park in your yard tonight and sleep? And I would be safe. Because they are, see, and he said, I'm not talking about people that just say they're Christians. I'm talking about true people that are true Christians. They are the nicest people the world owns. The world has. See, who wouldn't? You see, God's people ought to be a sweet-smelling savor. We are a sweet savor. Christianity brings order, civility, and morality to any culture. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. But you know, this savor affects people two different ways. If you notice in our text, drop down to verse 16. Verse 15 16 says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. You see, this savor, though it is a sweet savor to God and to Christ, and it is a savor to the saved and the lost, but it affects people two different ways. To one's a savor of death. We're a savor of death. To them that perish, that is to incur the loss of the true eternal life, uh, it, it, it brings them face to face with the fact that death is a reality and they are separated from God. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. You see, we are a savor of death unto death. Unto those who will not receive the truth, it is a savor of death. It's a reminder to them that they're headed for judgment. They're headed for hell. There there is a day of reckoning ahead that they must give an account before a holy and righteous God and that there is no escape. And furthermore, it is a reminder to them that they, if they were without Christ, they're already condemned. They're already separated from God. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. In John 3, verse, of course, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And God doesn't send us into the world to condemn lost people. He sends us with a message of hope. However, verse 18 says, He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. And so... It reminds, you know, to some we remind them that they are condemned, separated from God. We're a savor of death, of separation from God. You know, Ecclesiastes 9, 3 and 4 says this, There is an evil among all things that are done in the Son, but there is one event unto all. Yea, also the hearts of the Son of Men is full of evil. And madness is in their heart while they live. And after that they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living, there is hope. In other words, while you're alive, there's still hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. 
Now, I've often wondered, what in the world does that mean? You know, it's better to have a little in life, even if you're insignificant as a dog, and have life, than to be a lion that's dead and hope is all gone. You know, a lion's the king of beasts. A lion can live like a king, do what he wants, when he wants, what he wants. He is the king of beasts. But if he's dead, what good is he? There's no hope. It's better to be a dog and have life and have hope. Some people live like a dead lion. They don't want to think about death. They don't want to think about truth. You know, you can turn me off. You can tune me out. You can quit coming to the meeting. However, that will not alter your destiny. You cannot get away from the truth. You will still have to face God. You know, I'd rather live here like a dog than to be a dead lion without hope. When it's too late, the opportunity is gone forever. You know, death speaks of a miserable state of the wicked. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone with the beast and false prophet of the and should be tormented day and night forever. You know, death, you know, we think of death, we think of decaying, corruption. You know, hell with brimstone is sulfur, refers to sulfur. It smells like rotten eggs. Did you ever crack a rotten egg? Or did you ever turn some water on and was yellow and sulfur and smelly? Yeah, we are a savior that reminds them of death. But I want you to notice something. It says in verse 15, this is their choice. In them that are saved and in them that perish. It's their choice. So to one we are the savor of death. To the other we are the savor of life. Verse 16. To the one we are the savor of death and the death. The other the savor of life unto life. To them that are saved. Delivered from the penalty of sin. No longer separated from God. Made partaker of the divine nature. It is to have life. And life eternal. And the light of the gospel. Jesus said in John 8.12 I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not work in darkness but shall have the light of life. In other words, to have an understanding or a perception of God and a relationship with Him is to have life. 2 Timothy 1.10, the Bible says, But it is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life on our immortality light through the gospel. You see, I can understand what immortality and life is now because I've been enlightened by the gospel. I've been given understanding by the Spirit of God. I know that I have eternal life. And when I received Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was declared righteous by God on the merits of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing is, I can never be charged with my sin again. I have been declared righteous. You know, one of the things about our justice system is that if you've been declared not guilty of a crime, you cannot be cry- tried for that crime again. At least that's the way it's supposed to work. But that is the way it is for God. Hebrews 10.14 says this, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified.
Second Peter 1 3 says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See, I've been given, and when we, when we are born again by the Spirit of God, we are, we are given a divine nature. We're given the life of God. You know, on April 12, 1962, I was born into the family of Jefferson Lydia Violet. I cannot get out of the family I was born into. It's who I am. I was born into it. Now, I was chastened a few times. Well, maybe I should say quite a few times. But I am still a biler. And when I was born again by the Spirit of God into the family of God, I was given the life of God. Now it's who I am. It's who I am. You know, Paul, go to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a minute. I want you to imagine, use your imagination here a little bit. And imagine Paul writing this to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2, and he talks about their past, then he talks about their present, and then he talks about the future. And, I, and I'm kind of thinking that Paul says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespass and sins, which in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, filling the desires of the flesh and the mind, were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You know, I imagine Paul saying that, you know, and you know, this is the way we were. It's not good. It wasn't good. But aren't you thankful for the buts in the Bible? And verse 4 says, but God. But God. But Paul's saying, but, but you Ephesians, but God, who is rich in mercy, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. He's given us life. Quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved. Has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is my position now. That's my past. But this is my present. I'm seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Together with Him. He's not talking about together with each of us. He's talking about we're seated together with Christ. And then look at His future. That in the ages to come, verse 7, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So attend our cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Exiled from home, yet still I may sing, all glory to God, I'm a child of the King. See, to one, we're a saver of life. We're a saver of life under the word, a beacon of hope for those in sin. And Paul says, in every place. You know what that means? Everywhere you go, you ought to be a saver of hope. You've got to manifest that saver. What you notice, the second thing is, he says, he talks about the manifest our sufficiency in verse 16. To the one we are the savor of death and the death, to the other the savor of life and the life, and who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who of us is sufficient or capable of bringing forth this sweet-smelling savor to God and to the world? The efficiency, it talks about who has the ability, who is fit, who is worthy, who is able. You know, this is an awesome privilege and responsibility that our Heavenly Father has entrusted with us. But we see the answer of our sufficiency is in 14, where it says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. That word cause or causeth means 
grant one success. See, God's the one that grants us success. It's not me. It's not thee. It's God. It's God that grants us success. You know, think of the people in the Bible God granted success. You know, we think, well, I, I'm, I, I'm not worthy. I can't do it. You know, I got some problems. I got some issues. I got some besetting sins, and I, I just can't do it. You know who's telling you that? The devil is. That's a lie of the devil. Because you show me in the Bible a perfect man that God waited till men were perfect before he used them or gave them success. Not even Moses. Not even Moses meets that criteria. He was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. We talk about Abraham. You know, most of us think, well, Abraham was a great, great man. Yeah, he went down to Egypt and lied. He went over to Abimelech and lied. And in Egypt, he brought home Hagar. He went into Hagar. Are we seeing some problems here? You know, we say, oh, wait a minute. Well, maybe he wasn't so up there righteous after all. You see, the devil has convinced us because we're not quite there, we're not quite arrived at a certain place, that God can't grant us success. That he can't use us to be a sweet savor unto the world. That's a lie. Notice again, it is God which always causeth us to triumph. We talked about Gideon in Sunday school this morning. He was, he was afraid. He was a coward. He was fearful. He even made an idol after he won the victory. We can talk about David and Solomon, Jehoshaphat, who made a league with Ahab. Yet God granted them success or caused them to triumph because it is in him, it is not of us. We are simply instruments. You know, after all, he even used a donkey. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul said this, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. It's of God. John the Baptist said this, Matthew 3.11, indeed baptized, I indeed baptize with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and the fire. You know, John knew he was unworthy of the glory of the Son of God. He also know, he knew that he had been chosen to bear witness of him, and he chose to bear witness of him even though he said, I am unworthy. And he was the one that said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, it is he that makes us worthy to testify of him. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 4, 19, follow me, and notice carefully the wording here, I will make you. He didn't say, follow me, and you'll be fishers of men. He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul Verses 9 and 10 says, For I am the least of the apostles, then I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you think that kept Paul from serving God more abundantly than all the rest of the apostles? Because notice what he says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was stowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was myth me. You see, our sufficiency is of God. It's of God. He wrote Second Corinthians nine eight. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. You see, as a church, as we think about this as a church, our sufficiency, you know, we are to be a pillar and ground of the truth. 
First Timothy 3.15 says, But I tarry long, thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You know, a pillar is a support. It's a prop. You know, our front porch out there has two posts on the outside of it. They're pillars. They hold it up. They're props. The ground speaks of the basis. Speaks of, of being firm and settled. The basis of truth. You know, our... Our government is not the basis for truth. Science is not the basis for truth. There's a lot of faulty science in the world. Science, falsely so-called. Bible calls it. The word of God is the basis of truth. John 17, 17 says, Thy word, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is true. 2 Peter 1.3 says, We have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. And you see, the church is to be the purveyor of that truth, and it is in the church that the truth and the interpretation of truth is to be decided. Not in government, not in science, not in institutions of higher education, and that includes Bible colleges. It's the church, the local church, that is the pillar and ground of the truth. And but when a church departs from the truth, it ceases to be one of the Lord's churches. It may still meet. It may still have a pastor. It may still sing songs out of the hymn book. It may still seek to go out and win converts. It still may have people joining it. And it still may call itself a church. But if they've departed from the truth, the word of God, the true light of the Lord has been removed. Look at, look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Paul warned that this was a strong church by appearances. But Paul warned this church at Ephesus that they were in danger of losing their candlestick. In other words, they were in danger of ceasing to be a true church. But notice the description he gives of this church. Revelation 2, 1. Under the church of the angel, uh, under the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, how thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, hast found them liars, hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. You know, they, this was a working church. They were working hard. There were lots of activity going on here. I mean, they were even investigating those that said they were apostles, checking them out. However, verse 4, he said this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else. You know, you never like to hear your parents say, or else, do you? Jesus said to them, this is the Lord Jesus speaking to this church, he's saying, or else, I will come unto thee quickly, and I will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. You can still meet. You can still call yourself a church but it wouldn't be a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as a church, we're to, pillar, we're to manifest the sufficiency. Our sufficiency is not in us. And when, they, when we start to be satisfied with ourselves and look to ourselves like the church at Laodicea, we're in danger of losing our light. talking to somebody the other day. I met Solomon Lowe's. And one of the things he said was, most churches don't exercise church discipline anymore. And I wanted to ask him, does yours? Do I know something about his? Yeah, that's one of the marks of a true church. They will exercise church discipline when necessary. In other words, there's an adherence to the truth. 
And you know, when we go out into the world, we are bombarded with the forces of the evil, of the devil. But when we assemble together, we are reaffirmed, we are supported, we are propped up by the church. It's the one that props us up and reaffirms our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just sort of like Asa in the Old Testament in Psalm 73. He said, you know, he was, he was, he was, he was, uh, looked at the world and how they prospered and, and, you know, and these things troubled him. And he said, until I went into the sanctuary and I understood their end. Then I understood their way. He said, my feet almost well nigh slipped. See, our sufficiency is not in ourselves. It's in the Lord. Then notice the third thing. Manifest in sincerity. This savor is manifest in sincerity. Notice in verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. The word sincerity speaks of being pure or transparent. Pure or transparent. You know, if you go to the, if you go to a, a store, let's say to, a, you know, you go into Walmart or some kind of retail store and, and, and they, you know, bring it up and you hand them a hundred dollar bill. What are they going to do with it? Usually they go like this. They hold it up to the light to make sure it's genuine. It's real. You see, we're to hold ourselves up to the light of God's Word. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, that's basically what Paul is saying to the church of Corinth when he says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Prove your own selves. Know ye not yourselves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. See, we need to hold ourselves up to the light of God's word. We can't compare ourselves with each other. No, we have to compare ourselves with God. We can't compare ourselves, our church with another church. That's not, our, that's not where we're going to find truth. Or to Bible college? No, we can compare it with the truth of the Word of God. And hold to that in sincerity and purity. Joshua told the children of Israel in Joshua 24, 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. I want you to think about something with me this morning. We should not just seek people to join our church. But it should be our desire for people to have a genuine new birth experience. You you may have the opportunity to witness to somebody that lives an hour away from here. It's not likely that I'm going to invite them to our church. If they live over Chapel Hill Way, you know what I'm going to tell them? You need to go to Calvary Baptist Church. You know, I've witnessed people and I've uh, tried to find, you know, they don't live around here and tried to find a church. You know, it's not about people joining our church. The new birth doesn't give us entrance into our church. It gives us entrance into the kingdom of God. And that's what the gospel is. The new birth gives us entrance into the kingdom of God. It makes us a child of God. You know, it is possible to get somebody into a church without entrance into the kingdom of God. In other words, let me say it this way. It's possible to get somebody to be a member of a church and not really saved. If you get somebody born, genuinely born into the kingdom of God, I believe they will desire to join a church. To become a part of a body of Christ. Jesus Christ and the apostles did not preach the gospel of the church. It's not the gospel of the church. Now the church is to preach the gospel, but the gospel is not a gospel of the church. It's the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 3, 
John the Baptist came on the scene preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus Christ came on the scene preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Luke 4, 43, he went into all the villages preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Paul, even in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 11, Colossians 4, 11, Paul said uh, concerning the gospel, he said, and Jesus, which is called justice, who are the circumcision, they only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God. Paul was a church planter, we would call him. He said, I preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. But it is the church It's related to the kingdom in that it is the body through which the gospel goes forth. You see, we may not know who all are in the kingdom of God. In other words, we don't know everybody that is saved and everybody that's lost. In fact, Jesus said there's going to be tares among the wheat. That means there's going to be people that appear or profess to be saved that are not. We do know who's in our church. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is not made up of people with flesh and blood, but church is. Am I being confusing? Just bear with me. A church is made up of people who have professed faith in Christ and been baptized into the church. The kingdom of God is made up of people who have had a spiritual birth, been born again. That's it. A church is overseen by who? Men. A pastor. Men. They call them, Bible calls them overseer. Bishop. Elder. Pastor. A church... We are to examine people by their fruit. Matthew 7, 20 tells us. The kingdom of God is overseen or examined by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The all-seeing eye of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he doesn't look on the fruit. He looks on the heart. I can't know your heart. See, our job is to preach the gospel in sincerity. And we're to preach the truth and witness to the truth. And I say all this to say this. We are not to corrupt the truth. If our emphasis becomes that we're more interested in building our church than we are seeing people get saved with the truth, with genuine salvation, what that's going to lead us to is using methods that compromise the truth. And that's what we're seeing in our country. Independent Baptist churches have compromised the truth to build churches. Gimmicks, contests, all sorts of programs. There's nothing wrong with the program as long as it's biblical. But Paul said this in, in, in 2 Corinthians 2. He goes on and says, We are not as many which corrupt the word of God. See, to corrupt the word of God means to alter it, adulterate it, like a peddler who, who waters down wine so he can make more gain off of it. That's the idea. He's in it for gain. You know, we're not to barter the gospel or try to work a trade deal with the gospel or pressure someone into something they don't want. Paul said in Romans 14.5, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Peter said to the layman in Acts chapter 3, silver and gold have I none. But such as I have, I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ. Arise and walk. I don't have anything to give you. 
of this world. I have nothing to gain. All I have is Jesus Christ. That's it. But churches run contests to see how many professions they can get. I remember when I was in Maine at a Bible conference and this young fellow, they left this young fellow preach. He had just graduated from Crown College. He talked about the contest they had when they go out and soul winning. And they come back and tell how many professions they got. It's all a contest. And they do it to get their names published in somebody's paper, one of the fastest growing churches in America. They're building churches. They talk about building churches. No, we should be building people that make up a church. You see, we have to preach the gospel in sincerity. You know what that means? We have to preach you must repent. And most gospel presentations leave out repent. Because it's negative. But it's the truth. See, we have to come to an understanding through the knowledge of God of our position or our state before a holy and righteous God before we can really be born again by the Spirit of God and be willing to repent. See, it has, we have to manifest this savor in sincerity, in purity, according to the truth of the Word of God. We are that savor. Are we manifesting that savor before a lost and dying world in every place? By our word, by our witness, by our manner of life, the way that we live? What's the lingering thoughts people have of us? Making manifest, making Christ manifest in every place.